I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And it's a new week. It is a very new week. A new guest in our cavalcade of top-rate... Cavalcade. Yeah, that's great. How do you like that? I like our, that. Our armada of wonderful guests that we have mm-hmm. from one week to the next. Yes. This week is no no uh, deviation. This is a... I would say this is... You know what? I would actually say this is a little bit of a departure for us. Well, in content. In content. In content. It's, I learned a lot of interesting stuff about this interview. Yeah. Uh, hang with us all week on this interview. Yeah. It may be something that you don't think it's your cup of tea, but you'll find out there'll be some very intriguing things in it when you hear it further. We're going to have Donna Howell, who is the author of Ebenezer, The Final Years of Scrooge. Yes. A new book that's just coming out through uh, Tom Horn, one of our regular guests, his book mm-hmm. publishing house. Yep. And uh, he only gets involved in things that are interesting, I find. Mm-hmm. And he's going to sit in and, jo- and join us on this well, discussion. Without further ado, why don't we just uh, yeah, we're we're going to talk about this book and about uh, some interesting features about the book A Christmas Carol and mm-hmm. a follow-on book that uh, Miss Howell uh, has written that in just raises some intriguing issues. So, yeah. with no further ado, we're going to introduce Miss Howell, and then we'll be right back to discuss it on Future Quake. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And uh, we have uh, an old friend of ours and a new friend uh, for our interview tonight. Uh, we have Donna Howell, who is the author of Ebenezer, The Final Years of Scrooge. And we have her book publisher, Tom Horn, who's uh, sitting in uh, with us on here as well for a oh, cool. lively discussion. We're going to have a uh, Fantastic Four discussion mm-hmm. tonight. And we're going to talk about... Um, the subject matter of uh, her new book, and talk in general about uh, the whole the whole idea of interactions with the supernatural, and uh, some lessons learned we have from classic literature, and uh, what she elaborates further from that. And uh, Don, I just want to welcome you to the Future Quake Show as well as Tom. Well, oh, thank you. Uh, it is good to be here. Actually, the, the name of my book is is Ebenezer: The Final Years of Scrooge, not uh-huh. the following. Oh, if I said following, excuse me. <laughs> you know, I found it to be so frightening that uh, I, you know, I just lost yeah. my senses there for a while. It must have been a bit of undercooked potato that I had. 
But uh, thank a little you. Lion, a little lion from the book there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, evidently, I can't read off the page. I have it correctly here. The final years of Scrooge. Uh, in, in any case, I know you're going to share with us quite a bit about the uh, the book, uh, and it is a sequel to one of the most famous books and most beloved books uh, ever from Charles Dickens uh, called A Christmas Story. Uh, something that we have, our Christmas Carol, excuse me, that we've uh, read so many times uh, around uh, around the world, and is a is a favorite here. Um, while this novel uh, that you have just done, and by the way, congratulations on your, your completion of your novel. Um, Thank you very much. And uh, I'm I'm sorry. Hopefully, you'll uh, find you a better book publisher later on. But uh, you know, everybody's got to start at the bottom and work their yeah, way up. Yeah, you got to start somewhere, you know. Yeah. But. But uh, hopefully he won't be too much of an anchor to your uh, success in the future. Uh, <laughs> actually, you, uh, you you have incredible taste in the people that you hang out with. And I'm not referring to Tom Bionic. And I, I, I mentioned Brother Tom Horn there. I think uh, you're hooked up with uh, with the right gentleman there. He's uh, certainly been very, very successful in taking a lot of other authors right to the top. And I think I you, all, you all are a dynamite combination together. Um, <laughs> while, uh, while your novel uh, picks up where the f- first book ends... And uh, tells the rest of the story of uh, this uh, gentleman who was a converted, presumably uh, a Christmas uh, miser, who uh, came to see the light and, uh, in a Christian-type fashion, uh, came around to see the world a different way. Um, we're talking about it today because it's uh, ideal time of the year. It's it's October. We're coming right up to Halloween, just a couple of days away. Uh, from the, the time of our airing here, and as everybody knows, uh, ghosts are the subject matter of this particular ho- uh, holiday with Halloween. It's on everybody's mind, and uh, in this story, it's uh, probably one of the most best-known stories aside from the Bible itself about an individual who's visited by uh, three different spirits uh, in this classical tale. In fact, if you had a top ten list of uh, famous ghosts, uh, probably these would be somewhere in, in that ten, along with Casper, and I don't know who else, but uh, they would be right up there. Uh, in a minute, I want to ask you uh, a little bit more about this whole concept of ghost. Uh, it's something, actually, we don't talk about that much on this show, but it's something that's certainly a common vernacular on uh, uh, you know, uh, r- radio, national radio, or, or if you turn on the History Channel or Discovery Channel. Uh, but I, but I want to talk more about uh, how this fits or does not fit with Christianity, uh, which is something that we always come back to here on the Future Quake Show. But first of all, can you tell me, Donna, what motivated you to write your uh, new novel? Well, I have had a lot of people have asked me what has what has inspired me to to write uh, have my especially have my first book be um, a sequel, as it is to to a Christmas Carol. As a child, I was very analytical. Uh, I was always the girl that would watch um, the big happy ending in in Disney movies and TV shows and cartoons. And uh, often, instead of being able to just enjoy it as entertainment, my my brain would often wander off to, well, okay, sure, that's, that's happy and fun, but if this really happened, that's not how the story would end. I mean, at least it wouldn't end there. Uh, You don't just kiss the girl and ride off in the sunset, in other words. Right. I was always far more bothered by the fact that a story ended there than excited about it. And I'm still the kind of person that can sit down to a great movie or book that everybody else raves about. And and though I may also really love the story, such as in the case of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, Mm -hmm. I often find my mind wandering for, you know, days or sometimes even years afterward trying to piece it all together and say, 
you know, answer all the possible questions of what happens after they all live happily ever after. Um, I, as well as, as a lot of people I know, grew up in an extremely uh, conservative Christian home. And uh, because of that, and I had uh, relatives, uh, my close family and my extended family all were involved in the ministry. And growing up in that, I always thought that it was rather ironic um, that in a, in, a, in a conservative Christian home, um, most of the people that I knew, including myself, were not allowed to watch any movies or cartoons or anything or read books with um, any ghostly content or magic or goblins or, you know. And that being yeah. said, I always thought it was ironic that a lot of the Christian homes that I was acquainted with growing up was very open to the idea of letting Ebenezer's story be the exception to that. Because, well, just, I mean, it, it, it deserves a place in everybody's home, but then that goes against a lot of the conservative rules that you hear. You know, my kids aren't allowed to watch things with ghosts in it. So I thought that was always really ironic. But sure. um, that being said, there are a lot of reasons for why I chose this specific story to write about. Um, but one major point of interest for me in the story of Ebenezer Scrooge was the ghosts that appeared to him. Year after year after year, people all over the planet hear this story told and retold of this miserable miser and how these ghosts appear to lead him through the past, present, future of his life and how this impact is, is so paramount on those around him and how in the end everybody laughs and cheers and skips down the road singing. But throughout all these years, I haven't seen anybody really thoroughly address these ghosts and what they have to do with Ebenezer. I find the story so wholesome, I think it's kind of tragic that nobody's ever really addressed it in a way that you can get past that, you know, and, and have it be something that is theologically okay to allow into your household as well as being enjoyed. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you can read the original classic, you can watch movies, you can, you, you can, every year there's a new, a new one, you know, on TV. And, uh, the one thing, these ghosts will change in every in every story, but the one thing that is ever constant with these three characters of the past, present, and future is the fact that they came to help Ebenezer, and nobody ever knows why. That is the only thing that is constant about them. I mean, why do these ghosts have any personal interest in helping him at all? Uh, that question doesn't stop most viewers from enjoying the show just completely as is verbatim, fun, good, wholesome entertainment, but I have a very hard time dismissing the origin and driven purpose of three of the most detrimental characters of the story. Uh, that's a bit, you well, Mike, uh, yeah. if, if I could add just very quickly, uh, by the way, uh, thanks a lot for having us on your show again. You're always so tolerant and graceful. And uh, putting, up with, putting up with guys like me once in a while, get a jam like Donna, but then <laughs> well, all of a sudden here I come out of the closet. And I understood, <laughs> I understood that was part of the deal. We didn't have Grace. a choice in that. <laughs> You're going to have to pay the price. No, I'm Don, Donna, Donna drew the line. She refused to come on unless we <laughs> drag you on. I just, I don't, I don't want to, you know, get us off track. I only wanted to say that, uh, first of all, you know, Halloween is coming, and then Christmas, and so this topic's very timely, uh, especially this discussion. I think in, in October at least about ghosts, and I just wanted to tell you that as the publisher, I'm happy that. Uh, Books a Million, which is one of the largest uh, wholesale retail 
organizations in the nation. They've picked this up as their featured book. It's going to be wow. being featured by them on their front page of their website and so on all of uh, November and December. Uh, and the distributor sales rep told me that this was partly because they thought Donna had done something that um, nobody had done before. They were actually surprised that a book of this nature had not been written. Uh, and the book really is not um, about trying to define in terms of Christian ease um, what these ghosts were. But she does do uh, in the book, and I think an important job of writing this book so that it's a Christian book, it also deals with the issue of who these ghosts were and what was going on. But anyway, I just thought I would just add that, that I think the conversation is very timely, and Donna has done something that nobody has done before her with her book, Ebenezer, The Final Years of Scrooge. Um, we're very happy about the recognition it's already getting from some, uh, from some of the major buyers, retailers. That's extremely prestigious, and uh, I am extremely impressed. Uh, of course, I'm not surprised when I read the book, uh, hmm. but I'm just surprised that uh, uh, they would... Uh, you know, take the opportunity to see the real jewel that this book is. Of course, I know, uh, Tom, you're uh, an excellent promoter in uh, getting these kind of things set up, but it takes a dynamite author to make this happen. But, you know, going back to your your, you. your point, going back to your point, um, you know, this is this actually does fit very well in a broad sense with our show because a continuing theme on Future Quake is to try to get people to stop and think. We are being bombarded with information in our media. We've been told things our whole life, sometimes in church or on our television or other kind of things, our government. Uh, we, we get all this information that comes across us, and we don't stop to think about the significance of it. What is the message behind the uh, veneer of the storyline? And that's true in news that we hear, history books we have, and even classic literature. And so this is just another venue where you're stopped and you said, wait a minute. What's the meaning of all this? You know, it's an interesting story. It's it's charming in many ways, but 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 what's what's it really all about? And the fact, from just a business standpoint, that you took an absolute classic book that uh, has a, an enormous base of fans, and you have used this as a door uh, to be able to reach people with some thought-provoking material through it, I think is ingenious. And <laughs> I hope other people would get the idea to. Uh, Maybe, you know, take a book or take a lesson from the Howell playbook, Donna Howell playbook, and look at some other ways in which they can do this in a similar fashion, particularly for Christians uh, to do this. Just to give you an example, a few days ago I got a videotape uh, of something that was uh, recording some old shows in the 80s, Christian shows, about toys. And about toys that uh, were, you know, they were starting to market on TV. Uh, they were, they looked like very silly, innocuous toys, very famous ones. But they talked about the demonic and uh, sort of magical content of them, and and it was distributed as a joke. The people who sent the videos out thought that they were making fun of Christians. But the more I watched this, the more I realized this is programming. This is programming and opening up a door. And these people were serious and they had a serious message, but they stopped to think about what was bombarding our brains. So uh, I know we're going to talk about that in the interview here, but I think what you've done is just another example of what we need to do, is to look at all this information coming in our heads and stop and think where it's going. And, and I think you do a masterful job of elaborating on that. But I want to go back to what you uh, talked about, the, the whole issue of ghost and, and where it stood. And uh, I understand you did a lot of research with Charles Dickens uh, in, in trying to find out, trying to understand the background of all this. Can you elaborate further why he included spirits or ghosts in his famous novel? Why did he decide that those were key figures in the uh, the message or you know the, the the moral of the story that he had in mind? 
Well, in order to understand uh, Charles Dickens's reasons for including ghosts in his stories, um, you kind of have to understand his culture. The Tower of London is a very famous uh, location, for instance, known for many things. It is it's still uh, the location since the early 1300s of the crown jewels of the United Kingdom, which is the most famous and well-guarded treasure in the country. Uh, it's known for a lot of things, this tower. But it was built by William the Conqueror, originally known as Her Royal Majesty's Palace and Fortress. This large tower had been a home to royalty for years and a prison to actually a lot of recognized historical names, including several Henrys of England. Sir Walter Raleigh, who wrote uh, The History of the World, he wrote that while he was in prison there, and, and just hundreds of others. This is a place where kings were murdered, queens were put to the axe, Spies and traitors were executed, and innocents were just killed ruthlessly. And quickly, this this tower became most known as a place of murder, torture, and execution. Many reports, actually, within the last couple of hundred year, hundreds of years uh, being seen near this building match the descriptions and the likeness and paintings of people who had been tortured and executed there. So, seeing the as this building... Yeah, and seeing as... The appearance as, of ghosts? I'm, I'm sorry? The appearance of ghosts? Yeah, a lot. Within the last two or three hundred years, uh, reports that have come in in that general area that people are saying they've seen a ghost or they've seen a spirit or they've seen something in paranormal, they match the description and the likeness and paintings of people who had been tortured and executed there. Hmm. Weird. Well, Seeing you know, as. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I know what you mean. I've been there to the Tower of London. Uh, not as a prisoner, but as a tourist. And um, I, I know Mrs. Future many times would like to leave me there probably. but uh, Lock you up in the tower. But it does have a um, an atmosphere. Maybe it's because they still have uh, some some relics of some of the prisoners that were put put in the cages hanging from the wall and things like that. It's a very gruesome place. And they almost revel in this uh, history of it. But but when you walk inside, you almost can feel the sense of it. And if you have read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and things, when you know of all the ter terrible uh, misery of people that have been put in there as political or religious prisoners or things like that, if there ever was a place that was just a, a center of depravity where uh, Satan's hordes reigned, it would be a place like the Tower of London. Well... It, that's definitely true, and they've actually released several uh, DVD documentaries on the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, if if you watch any of them, it, it's it's kind of spooky. I mean, there's a lot of history there. There is a lot of very, um, very well. There's a lot of brutal brutal history. A lot of brutality mm -hmm. that has happened in that building. And you say this had a real influence on Charles Dickens. Well, this was just one of several build buildings in, in central London. This building is repeatedly the most haunted building in all of England for hundreds of years, and, and, and quite possibly, in some people's opinion, it's the most haunted building in all of the world for, for several hundred years now. And its location in central London is, is, is 4.8 miles away from the home where Charles Dickens did most of his growing up. Hmm. So it's it's actually very understandable that he would have a cultural familiarity with the subject of ghosts and with the idea of including ghosts in his stories. However, the interesting and bold thing about what he wrote, and the reason this is also the reason his books gained overnight popularity and have never gone out of print, was not that his stories included ghosts, 
It was the way that he included them, the way that he described them. Um, in A Christmas Carol specifically, he gave them a redeeming quality. Uh, they appeared to Ebenezer to help him and make a better man, which in the year that this book was published was a very bold approach to the subject of ghosts. The culture that Charles Dickens grew up in was one that openly addressed ghostly issues, as in you could have an open conversation about it, but not one that would easily welcome a newer approach. Uh, the primary reason why in Dickens' day there was such a sensitivity to the subject was because of the possible consequences of admitting that you had a personal encounter with one. Um, and an easier, kind of an easier way to, to describe this, the, the, the witch trials and witch hunts, which happened all over Europe in the early 15th century, all the way through to the last known legally condoned witch execution in the mid-1700s, all of that brutality, that years and years of that buildup, cast an enormous cloud over the freedom of, of being able to claim any personal contact with any paranormal at all. Miss uh, uh, Hal, remind, remind our listeners what time, what uh, year that this book was written? Uh, eighteen thirty-four, I think. Eighteen thirty-four. Okay. Mm-hmm. I oh. believe it was eighteen thirty-four. And uh, well, basically, the easy way to describe this this social theory in, and put it in the, in the easiest nutshell: if you've seen the movie The Crucible, or if you're familiar with the stories on the Salem witch trials. Once it had been decreed in this story that anybody communicating with uh, the devil or a ghost must be accused, arrested, examined, and tried as a witch, and the consequences of this trial usually resulted in execution, an outbreak of accusations exploded all over the place. In the movie, as well as in the plays, as well as in historical record, one only had to open their mouth and say, I saw so-and-so with the devil, or I saw so-and-so communicating with the devil or something dark for someone to be tried as a witch and, mm -hmm. and poss quite possibly lose their life. So people in political power, religious power, and sometimes only simply for revenge, they started claiming that they saw people in their dreams communicating with the devil or practicing witchcraft, and it was an easy way to, uh, of removing somebody that they were mad at or an obstacle that was keeping them from their own personal gain in power. So admitting that you yourself had any communication with the devil or anything dark would have been suicide. So I use the Salem Witch Trials to further illustrate my point and make it easier to understand, but now you can kind of under, understand the overall social pressure mm. uh, of ever openly admitting that you had any personal communication with the paranormal in certain cultures. So This kind of casual brutality and injustice existed for hundreds of years in Europe, and, and the Salem Witch Trials only lasted about a year. So this would be a shocking book to the culture then when they read about this, to even broach the topic and put it in a modern motif of their day would have just been a scandalous storyline. It, it definitely would have. In fact, uh, Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf, if, you're, if you don't know much about her in a nutshell, she was a novelist of the 1920s. She was a core founding member of the Bloomsbury Group, which was a club of very well-known literary personalities who devoted themselves to a basically opinionated essays on subjects such as sexuality, pacifism, feminism, all kinds of very gutsy, very bold, hard things to approach. And um, she was actually one of the founding core personalities of this. And before Virginia Woolf killed herself as as a symptom of what we now recognize as clinical bipolar disorder, 
she became actively involved in lesbianism while she was still married to her husband mm. and included very powerful homosexual undertones in her work from that day forward. Mm. Virginia Woolf was a controversy on legs, and she said that uh, Charles Dickens' work was, quote, trashy and did not deserve a place in curriculum. <laughs> so, uh, that I mean, yeah, it, it's bold. When Charles Dickens wow. wrote that ghosts could be a positive influence in A Christmas Carol, it was not in sync with many of the unofficially approved uses of ghostly references in his culture. To that general culture, ghosts are bad. Talking with ghosts is bad. Communicating with anything that could relate to anything dark is bad. And basically... Just short of running away screaming when you saw anything paranormal was also bad. So the fact that our hero, Ebenezer, not only sees them and talks with them, but also willingly goes with them and is therefore redeemed because of their influence, their intervention in his life, that was a very loud sure. statement to make. Well, it it's, was, it's interesting because I'm thinking about the literature they had at their disposal. They had the Bible. In one of the only cases in the Bible where you have something that would be called a ghost as opposed to an angel or other spirit, was, was uh, Samuel with the Witch of Endor, which was considered a very negative event that, that added to the doom of the person conjuring him, uh, Saul. Uh, and then you could maybe even argue Dante's Inferno or something like that in that case. But there were no positive uh, connotation of a formerly mortal being in her spirit state contacting someone and anything good that came of it, correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I I would I would bet to say that maybe only a handful of people anywhere who ever stopped to think about that uh, mm. outside of literature majors uh, to stop to even consider that. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I find it also very interesting that uh, it wasn't long after that, although this did technically predate it, but it wasn't that long after that that the uh, modern spiritual spiritualist movement started. Uh, and it had early beginnings both in the United States uh, and in England and became to be uh, a very big deal. And, and we today, in our very, very permissive culture, uh, can't imagine how popular the seances and ghosts were that far ago. We, we picture more of a Victorian-type era uh, where people were very, very uh, you know, uh, restrained in, in their pursuits. But this was something that was extremely popular, and I'm sure that had to do a lot to uh, help really increase the popularity of this novel. It did. It did. Uh, a major boost for this novel was because of its controversy, and most people don't know that. Um, mm -hmm. This this day and age, you talk to people about the Charles Dickens novel, and you know their their react their knee jerk reaction to hearing Dickens or Christmas Carol is, yeah, I like the part you know where Ebenezer and it's so cute and he sees himself <laughs> as a little boy. But the truth, the truth of the matter is, the year this came out, the, the the overnight success was probably greatly attributed to the fact that it was a controversy. Mm. Well, uh, that and the fact that it, it it was a very it was was a very fun novel as well. I'm not saying the only reason right. why it had any success was because of the controversy. But, but you know, this has this has a lot of parallels to today because, and I don't mean to indict any particular book today, but you've got books like The Shack and other things that are allegories and parallels where they take liberties with certain theological mm -hmm. points or things like that to try to do a greater moral, some kind of positive moral. And, and people today uh, have a hard time drawing a line between uh, the theological realities and, and allegory. And mm -hmm. I, I could see some of those kind of things, those seeds being sown back in the early days with, with a work like this. 
where it actually starts uh, sort of twisting the view that people have where they could suddenly start seeing some kind of positive nature to disembodied spirits. And, and certainly that would be very supportive when you get into spiritualism and they want positive things to come back. Uh, you know, they want uh, Uncle Sam or whoever who's gone on to come back and uh, tell them that he's okay and what they should do or if they should marry this person or not or whatever. And so they have a positive association with making this contact, which probably would have been unheard of prior to a book like A Christmas Carol. Is that right? Yeah. So it, it yeah. sort of prepped the people to sort of envision a scenario where something positive could come out shortly thereafter when the uh, the spiritualism movement really took off. Took off. And uh, then it makes you wonder uh, who might have been guiding Dickens' hand. Uh, I'd hate to judge someone when I don't know, but it, when you look back at history, it's very interesting huh. to see what result that would have been to uh, sort of prep people. Thesis. Yeah. Uh, well, there, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you know, I, I hate to talk about things like this without bringing Brother Tom into it. Uh, yeah. I know you're sitting there patiently in the wings, and, and you've written so <laughs> much more than, than any of the rest of us here on this kind of matter. What are your thoughts on uh, what we're talking about here? Well, you know, I'm sitting here listening, and, of course, you know, what Donna's saying is is absolutely true. It didn't take very long after Dickens had written this book um, that um, there was kind of a reaction, if you will, to, ra to the, uh, you know, the rationalism of the 18th century. Um, if you study world history, you find out that there was this point in time where people started kind of turning away from Christianity, started kind of turning away from um, most of the major religions, uh, scientific advances were starting to finally uh, come forward that we're offering alternative hypothesis, if you will, to what we were as humans and where we were going. And, and for a while, there was a great deal of suppression in the 18th century about any kind of belief in the uh, supernatural. And, you, you, you know, you mentioned um, spiritualism. Uh, spiritualism in the mid uh, 1800 started growing out almost kind of out of a I don't want to say it was a knee-jerk reaction but it was a reaction to rationalism scientism by agnostics who had mm -hmm. ceased to find favor with the major religions and it what ultimately happened is it kind of led to a vacuum if you will mm -hmm. for those who were spiritually hungry which would be the majority of people and people and then in addition to that if you study spiritualism you find out that even the agnostics, the so-called atheists, whatever, who, who would not espouse Christianity or any of those beliefs, but they did not want to believe that death was the end of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they still wanted to believe that there would be some form of existence after this life. And so what happened, uh, spiritualism uh, came to refer to a couple of different kinds of ideas. Uh, one... Um, uh, it referred to the philosophical theories, which held that spirit was the ultimate reality. Now, by the way, that's also uh, believed today in some of our esoteric ideas and even some of our scientific ideas. Well, and, and I just want to, Tom, I just want to say that we can obviously see parallels today with mm -hmm. the New Age movement as a backlash to our very materialistic culture now that we're, we're in an age of evolution and very uh, materialistic type teaching. The New Age movement is just sort of a, uh, a little more sophisticated version of what you're talking about, the spiritualist movement. Would, wouldn't you agree? Well, I would agree, but, I, but I'll tell you, um, it's, it's easy, I think, to tie um, communicating with the dead 
with the ultimate revival of paganism, Wicca, other religions, the New Age movement, any of these that might use oracular, oracle, oracular devices <laughs> for, for, for kind of uh, trying to bridge the gap between the seen and the unseen. What's more difficult, though, and, and this is the part that escapes a lot of people when you talk about spiritualism, um, is how that some of the basic spiritualist beliefs have emerged in even some of our uh, modern fields of science. So for instance, homeopathic medicine. There, there are even Christian homeopathic doctors who I, I make no second guesses about what they do or the value of what they do. But, but at the core, if you study homo, uh, homeopathy, um, it's a healing art of the spirit, right? It's a theoret the, the theoretical underpinning of homeopathic health is that a healthy human being is inhabited by an integrated spirit or what they call a vital force, something that will endure beyond this world, and that diseases and ailments uh, are supposedly not caused by material substances like we think they would be, mm -hmm. environmental issues, but rather when a person falls ill, it's because their spiritual vital force uh, that that something deep inside that's part of every part of their organism that that's somehow being deranged or altered by some other kind of dynamic influence that's hostile to the life of that spirit. That's at the core. If you study homeopathic medicine, that's the core. Now, I'll give you one that's a little easier for people to see. Spiritualism alive today in parts of psychiatric treatments. How helping well, how helping people psychologically often means that the counselor has to employ a method whereby the patient is encouraged to communicate with their dead loved one what? as a way of, as, well, sure, as a way of letting go. Uh, there, there are psychiatrists and psychologists today that are certainly employing spiritualistic um, uh, systems of dealing with the fact that when a, when a loved one dies, they're gone. And people struggle with the idea that they're gone. And so some psychiatrists are actually using methods, psychomantriums, um, whereby they right. can communicate with the dead loved one in order to close the door, if you will. And see, when, when you ask about this question, what is spiritualism, and I don't want to dominate the show because I'd much rather hear Donna Lee talk than me, um, but, 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 but um, it's the idea that, the, that the human personality, in some form, survives death, and it's there on the other side. And secondly, spiritualism is the idea that there might be a method by which we can communicate with the spirits of those dead. Now, you have to have an apparatus. You have to have a method. And the one I mentioned a minute ago, the psychomantium, is one that modern psychologists, psychiatrists use. Um, early on, it was, um, you know, the shaman. Later on, it was the spirit mediums who, in their different ways, were uh, used to contact, to make contact between this world and the spirit world. So in spiritualism, you have these two basic fundamentals, the ultimate reality and eternal state of spirit. In Donna's book, she's referring, of course, to the Dickens classic where you have, um, what's, what's his name, the, 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 the main guy that had worked with Scrooge before he died? Yeah, Marley, Jacob Marley. 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 Yep, yep, okay, yep, Marley. And, and this brings us to the second part of spiritualism, the belief that contact with these disembodied spirits could be made um, by the living. There's mm. a lot of history to this, and people can find it very interesting. The, the whole 
modern spiritualist movement, how it arose in the 1800s out of the Fox family, you know, in New York State. That's right. And uh, so anybody that wants to do the research into that can, but the amazing part is how that has how that has survived into uh, modern culture and that even parts of scientific ideas and and uh, psychosis and psychology and psychiatry uh, and medical health it's 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 uh, it's very easy to see those parts that are connected to new age religions hmm. but people i think would be amazed to find that how much is connected even into uh, both our psychological and physical health uh, issues today the idea that um, that that we are ultimate spirit, we're going to survive after this life, and that there is a method for communicating. Of course, the Fox family I mentioned, if you recall, uh, they're the ones who moved into a house there. I'm going to say this and then stop talking. They're the ones that moved into a house there, you know, in, in New York, and um, they heard noises in the house, kept keeping them awake and whatever, and they had a daughter, Margarita, and another daughter named Kate. And uh, one night they all got together and they started asking, you know, who's making this noise? Are you a spirit? And, and if you are a spirit, tap on the table. I think it was three times or whatever it was. And here it came, you know, three times right. knocking yeah. on the on the table. And that's that. Well, that was what gave birth to a table mm -hmm. tapping. And also uh, Tony Orlando's song, Knock, Knock Three Times. <laughs> well... <laughs> You, you, you may be right about that, but but the whole point was it became very popular in the 1800s and 1900s, and people like Edgar Casey, Harry Houdini, I mean, it was uh, tons of celebrities. Uh, but I think that the birth, I think that the birth of it was kind of a reaction to the rationalism of the of the early 18th century, which Donna was referring to, that said, you know, there's no such thing as spirit. It's all everything is based on science and and hmm. uh, on the other side of it the, the ecclesiastical side of it if you're saying that you're talking to ghosts then you must be uh, in league with the devil you've got the devil's mark on you and you had to be very careful back in those days because there were strong political religious powers that could put you in a situation where it might mean the end of your life well let me uh, just just mention quickly that uh, uh You've done a lot of work. You've published quite a few books uh, on, that include this topic, and I recommend all of our listeners to check out RaidersNewsUpdate.com and follow the links to, to, to find out where to get some of your books uh, uh, on this particular topic. Uh, and, and I have to say, aside from your books, excluding your books, uh, one of the most influential books in my life, aside from the Bible, was a book written in 1876 called Earth's Earliest Ages. I was just going to mention that. By the theologian George Pember. Yeah. Uh, and he talked a lot about the, in the second half of that book, about the rise of spiritualism, which was just starting uh, over in England where he was writing. And he talked about it being a sign of the last days. And he, he, he has some narratives in there of reported events that are really chilling. But I highly recommend all of our listeners check out that book as well as uh, Brother Tom Horn's books as well, too. Uh, if you're interested in a video, uh, I know Tom uh, uh, Bionic and I would both recommend uh, Brother Chris Pinto's documentary, Megiddo 2, oh, The yeah. New Age, because it goes and spends a good bit of time documenting the spiritualism movement, 
uh, how it went from the Fox sisters, how Mary Eddy began uh, Christian science mm-hmm. uh, from having these events. And, and it really brings into what became the underpinnings of the New Age movement, the alternative healing movements and things like this. And that is something else that would be an excellent uh, resource people can get. Yeah, uh, we've we've actually Great shown stuff. that in our last documentary night in downtown Indeed. Nashville here. It was well received. Uh, uh, Tom, I I know uh, you want to step back a little bit from our discussion, but I have one more real quick question for you, and then we're going to focus on Donna. If that's okay with you, Donna. <laughs> that's fine. I just got one one other quick thing I want to ask him about about uh, uh, other Christians. Now, a, a lot of people who are regular listeners of our show are you know somewhat comfortable with a lot of things we talk about, even though we don't talk about ghosts so much. But we talk a lot about the supernatural world. But there's a, there's a good number of Christians who believe there's no such thing as ghosts or or haunted places what that about have the a Holy ghost. Well, particularly the King count. James version, yeah, that would count. But uh, I'm talking about what we consider disembodied spirits, um, like the Elohim. Uh, well, we're talking about people. We're talking about uh, people who once <laughs> were on this earth and that now are not. Uh, we're not talking about uh, what we consider divine or semi-divine people, but Back to my question, uh, Tom. Uh, the uh, there's some Christians who don't believe in these kind of things, or that there can be a place that has a physical connection to these disembodied spirits or ghosts, um, and they see that all ghosts basically are a manifestation of demons, a demonic uh, a phenomena. Is this good theology? I know that was a long time getting around to the question. Yeah, but well, the fast uh, answer, you know, is the idea that all ghosts are a demonic manifestation. Is that good theology? And the truth is that's not good theology. Now, I should say I was a pastor for 25 years. I held executive um, uh, titles in the largest evangelical institution in the world, and I'm not a heretic, and I have not departed, uh, you know, mm-hmm. from my uh, orthodox uh, understanding of the scripture. But the truth is, notwithstanding the fact that the activity of communicating with ghosts is incompatible, was in the Old Testament, as far as I know is in the New Testament, it's incompatible with monotheistic Yahwism. In other words, meaning it's forbidden in the Old Testament. And as far as I know, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the covenant. So it's probably still forbidden in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So uh, believers ought not to try to communicate with the dead. However, having said that, uh, the fact is there are numerous places in the Bible that refer to the spirits of dead humans, demons, the spirits of dead humans, and the ability for people to be able to communicate with them, especially those that seek them out, and I also believe, in fact, I wrote about this in my first two books, Spiritual Warfare, The Invisible Invasion. I also wrote about it in my second book, The Gods Who Walk Among Us. The first one's completely out of print. The second one's out of print. I think there's a few copies of it meandering around here and there, so I'm not trying to sell a book because it's not in publication anymore anyway, mm-hmm. but but I wrote in both of those books about how also hauntings, in mm-hmm. some cases, are real. Now, I've had... I've had discussions with some of the best scholars out there. One of the names that you would be very familiar with, because I think you interviewed him recently, was Dr. Michael Heiser. Yeah. And uh, Heiser is a—he's a true scholar. He can interpret—he can interpret, I think, um, something like seven extinct languages. 
his credentials are not challenged by anybody that I know. He is the academic hmm. editor for Logos International. He the, still wouldn't the, be able to read my handwriting, however. Yeah, I was he just going to say. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to interpret your handwriting. He, he might, though, think parts of it have something to do with the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah, that's a, it's a combination between Coptic and Nephilim. <laughs> Tom, Tom, Tom didn't say that, that, he, that he was an expert in chicken scratch. <laughs> <laughs> Lost Acadian or something. Right. Yeah. But here's the point. I've, just, I've talked with Heiser, both uh, in person and also via email, about this idea about ghosts. And I, I went to him at one point and I said... Um, you know, I think I'm the only person in the world who is willing to talk about this. Well, I found out that he's willing to talk about it, too. And he's actually working on a new book that's not published yet. I'm hoping to actually be able to publish it, but uh, which deals in part with some of this and makes reference to the word ob, O-B, which is a word that's used uh, at least 17 times in the Old Testament. And in all but one of those cases refers either to the spirits of dead humans or the persons who communicate with dead humans, not demons, humans. For instance, the famous Witch of Endor is, is actually more properly defined in the Hebrew text as a maiden of the old. Um, this is a person who communicated with the spirits of dead humans. There's also references such as Isaiah 29.4, where the prophet talks about the voice of a dead human coming up from out of the ground. So, this was a this was a, a, a biblically known fact. It, it did not change the prohibition in the law against doing it. But what it does do is tell us that the reason why the law was made was because it was possible. There would have been no reason to make a law against communicating with the dead if it wasn't possible. Unless it was unless it was deception. But you're just saying well, there was uh, a feasibility but, that was there. Well, no, I'm saying that, I'm saying that both is there, and that's why the law is made. In other words. There are many different kinds. The Elohim, which Tom Bionic referred to a minute ago, in some cases can refer to the spirit of a dead human, but it can also okay, refer I to Okay, I stand correct. I stand corrected. Ding, ding, ding. One Tom, point for Tom Bionic. Tom Bionic well, will can, never <laughs> let me hear otherwise. It can refer to the, to the spirit of angels. It can refer to the spirit of demons. It can refer Anything. to different yeah. things. And the idea being that the reason why I think the reason why God would have forbade communicating with the dead was because in our fallen situation, now there was a non-fallen human which would have been able to determine the difference, but in our fallen estate, if we're communicating with something that is invisible to us, we may be communicating with a dead human, but we might be talking to a demon. We might be talking to something that's trying to make some kind of an inroad into our life, and so that God who cares about us, puts up this blockade, if you will, and he says, don't go. Don't don't intrude into another realm or another dimension. Your dimension is where you are. You live in the three-dimensional reality. You are. The law is don't try to intrude into this other reality because it's like a mother who places, um, you know, one of these little child separators in the doorway, mm -hmm. you know, little child fence things that you expand out the door. It's like a mother trying to keep a, a, a toddler from going into the kitchen. There's a lot of good things in the kitchen. There's food there, but there's also knives there. And a toddler does not have the kind of knowledge uh, to be able to determine what may or may not hurt it. And so the mother, caring about the toddler, puts up a barricade. This is the Levitical law, you know, and this is also... 
the law in Deuteronomy and elsewhere that says do not try to communicate with the dead. And I think that the reason behind this was because we would not know, uh, we wouldn't know. Uh, we wouldn't have the capacity, the mental capacity in our current estate to be able to know for sure who or what we are communicating with. Mm-hmm. That Now, the, the law says don't do it, but it doesn't change the fact that in some cases, in some instances, where people have felt that there was the presence of a loved one or somebody who had gone on that for whatever reason was there or whatever, it doesn't mean that in fact that person wasn't in fact there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me uh, let me just add two other examples that, that just came to my mind now that you shared this, and it's a pretty provocative thought you shared. Um, when we think of the rich man and Lazarus, even though it's presumed to be a parable, uh, sharing with the people of that time, the rich man wanted to go back and warn his brothers, uh, and it might have been he just had some kind of completely vain and ridiculous request, but it also could be interpreted that that, that audience at that time considered that a feasibility mm-hmm. for him to be able to do that, even though he was told it would be a waste of his time to go do that. And then obviously we know that at the Transfiguration, uh, Jesus, who was properly equipped to... Uh, uh, be able to deal with this as the master of, of all dimensions in the universe, was able to talk with what we presume to be Moses and Elijah, who we yeah. knew to be dead. Or, or at least uh, they had left this earthly plane, let me say that way. So uh, it, it really gives me food for thought when you share this with me about some other examples in Scripture that uh, may reinforce your point. Well, oh, that's I, I actually I have a couple of theories as to uh, a woman's perspective on why God would forbid the communication with dead with dead humans with spirits in that way. Mm-hmm. I actually think one very emotional uh, approach to a theory behind the question of why God would not allow communication with the dead is related to His current closeness with us. There, here's a woman's perspective. Apart from the possible ancestral worship which might take place, which could also be in itself a form of idolatry. Right. Um, you know, if you can communicate with your spirits. Uh, the spirits of your ancestors, why why wouldn't you be worshiping them instead of God? Apart from that concern, and also apart from the possible danger of dabbling uh, in things you're not familiar with or communicating with something that you may or may not see as the threat that it might be, even if you were to strip idolatry and danger out of the question, out of the equation entirely, I think that God made us to praise Him. I think God made us to have relationship and fellowship with him and to need to depend on him in times when we don't know what to do or if we have a big question in, in our lives, if, if it were made easy or, for that matter, if it was made possible at all for us to go summon Aunt Mary every time we want guidance, many of us, many of us might think that we don't need any more divine guidance than that alone. If the ancestral ghost or friend or whoever seem to know us intimately just based on the fact that they're a relative or somebody that we knew knew somebody that we knew, uh, if they were able to answer, excuse me, offer answers or guidance, why would people need to strive for a personal relationship with God at all? Part of having a relationship with God is faith and trust and knowing that your heart, in, that in your heart of hearts he is watching you, he feels your feelings, he'll give you answers in his timing. You can't have faith and trust in God, and then snap your fingers expecting an instant answer from him. So anytime we feel impatient, which is part of our daily society, especially in America, but all over the world right now, we are so busy and impatient, 
anytime we felt impatient, as we are weak and busy, we can turn around and say, hey, looky here, Aunt Mary knows me. Aunt Mary was friends with Mom, and just uh, you know, I'm just right. like my mom. I'll just ask her. Right. And with a general mentality like that, people would be tempted to feel like they didn't need God at all. The closeness and spirituality that we were designed, we were designed to have with Him it has just been trumped by the fact that Aunt Mary's only a seance away. So even if danger was not a concern now, even if we no, never bowed no. down and worshipped a soul of the dead or, or whatever, by restricting us to communicate only with ourselves and only with God, we have become dependent upon him as a friend, a leader, as somebody who gives us strength. And this is why God sent the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, something actually referred to as a spirit, as mm-hmm. the Holy Ghost which replaces the need to communicate with any other spirit. Well, in, in fact, we, to reinforce your point, um, we, we we tend to make idols of anything like that as opposed to yeah. God. We can even take signs and wonders and make those, in essence, an idol. Uh, or we can take uh, certain dogmas or certain other kind of confessions, things like that, whatever. We, we, we can take a whole host of things, icons, whatever, and make those... In an idol in lieu of, like you say, the the, the ultimate resource in God. Uh, if we had access and it was genuine to these people and it occurred, uh, to me it's still a bit of a stretch to think that they might have the ultimate answers for everything in our life mm. in lieu of God uh, himself, who was, the, who was our creator and the creator and sees the big picture. There's been no beginning and no end that uh, even if you had someone that had greater intelligence on the other side, that's not to say that they know exactly what would be in your best interest. Hmm. Well, and think about this. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say that um, um, some of the prohibition I've always thought um, in the in the law, in the biblical law, some of the prohibition against communicating with the dead did have to do with ancient elder worship because uh, the surrounding nations around uh, Israel were very much um, tuned to communicating with their dead ancestors, where families would seek counsel from a dead father, for instance, about what they should do. Uh, They also deified their dead loved ones, meaning that uh, in the afterlife they became something more than human. Um, And some people, some people, some scholars do say that that might be part of the reason behind the law against communicating uh, with the dead uh, in the Old Testament, as Yahweh had said that there would be no gods before me. And remember that they were surrounded by these very, very uh, old, um, you know, what are the Greek religion, some of this stuff lasted 2,000 years, something like that. Um, imagine that, 10 times or more longer than the United States has even been a nation is how, how long people had fallen down and said, great is the goddess Diana. So we're talking about things that had been around for, you know, for, for generation after generation after generation. And these were belief systems that were strong. So you look, for instance, at the Homeric gods. These were the Homeric gods of Greece were just supernatural men and women. That's all they were. That's all they were, and they were both good and uh, evil. And the hypothesis was that the the good talk about how this might relate to spiritualism, um, Mike and and Tom. Um, the, the the good and powerful spirits of good men and women rose up to assume places of deity Hmm. after physical death. But the evil spirits of deceased evil men and women became the gods who were doomed to either roam the earth as disembodied spirits or the interior of the earth, where their spirits would remain in this uh, this, uh, eternal limbo um, where they couldn't 
perish, but on the other hand, they couldn't attain the grandeur of heaven or Olympus. Um, and so that belief system was very old, very strong, and even though today, you know, our, our logic tends to change, especially if we're strong evangelicals, we might look at some of that theology and say, well, I, I can't even understand where these people would be coming from. But this was an entrenched system. People, of, listeners do that on our show all the time, Brother yeah. Tom. Uh, <laughs> massive confusion and head scratching is a regular Nothing feature on the show. The shape of click. <laughs> yeah. Even when we just do review the news, that happens to our listeners. Well, but, but look at it. But now, well, you know, this is the month of October, and we've got you, you've got Donna uh, Howell here. That you're Donna. I called her Donna Lee earlier. That's her middle name. I always called her Donna Lee, but it's Donna Lee Howell. Donna Howell. Do you just and call her that when she's in trouble with you? <laughs> Donna Lee. Actually, Donna Lee is my preferred name. I, I tell people to call me that. <laughs> okay. Everybody, everybody that knows her actually calls her Donna Lee, so I apologize. But and that slipped <laughs> out earlier. But the point is, <laughs> when, when you uh, look at you know look at modern um, like Hollywood films, Poltergeist, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you have this this concept of these indestructible spirits from deceased evil men. This very much is a play off the old ideas about Homeric gods, the powerful gods, whether they are good or evil, we better pay homage to them. And this was ancestral mm. worship. So today, you look at Freddy Krueger, we think, okay, this is just, um, you know, this maniacal slasher from the from the film series Nightmare on Elm Street. He's this indestructible spirit, and he's come to Elm Street, and he's killing all these kids and stuff. But but deep in our psyche, this is actually just a modern form of mythology. It, it's a play mm. off of the old belief systems that good people become angels when they die, and evil people become demons, if you will, or powerful, um, uh, powerful gods like Hades or, or, or Dionysus or whatever mm -hmm. that can occupy the underworld. But these are really just the spirits of dead humans. And so as... As uh, as people who are still alive, boy, you know, we better make sure we pay homage to both sides, the good and the bad, because some of them make the some of them make the crops go away in the fall, and other ones make the crops come back in the spring, and and you know we're going to pray to our we're going to pray to our uh, dead loved ones because we depend upon them to give us either their blessings or save us from their curses, uh, or to defray their anger or to bring upon us their blessings, and so. Donna's she's actually right in the sense that that this had a lot to do with uh, with uh, ancient uh, elder worship, this prohibition against communicating with the dead and not having any gods before me. Well, brother Tom, what you what seems to be implicit in that, and what you're just saying, is that uh, the reason you would have to appease these um, these evil or dark forces, and and basically it's a, a, a admission of respect of their power, is also implicit. That the, that the good forces, whoever became the gods that they see, are not sufficiently strong enough to be able to stay the hand of the evil forces. And you got to play both sides. Whereas in the Christian worldview, we believe that Satan and his minions are incredibly strong, much stronger than us as individual mortals. But that God's power is all-reaching and right. that he has the ultimate reins and control. And if if we give our singular devotion to him, uh, Satan's minions may harass us and cause all, all other fits, but only within the limits that God prescribes. And that uh, giving our devotion completely to to God, 
uh, is a way ultimately to be protective of us rather than giving any kind of split devotion between the two. So I Boy, see that you are, you are absolutely right, Mike, and that's, mm. and I think that's the whole point that the prohibition against trying to delve into this realm of communicating with the dead was prohibited by this loving God who's more powerful than all these other entities and who says to us, look, I'm putting up these barriers because I'm powerful enough to do it and I'm doing it because I care about you. So obey my rules because if you abandon me, if you go out there and just start communicating with the dead, you've taken yourself out from underneath my uh, ultimate protection and you've started mm. dabbling in affairs where you can bring harm to yourself spiritually. So so don't do it. This is the law. Because if you shelter in me, you'll be protected from all this other stuff because I'm more powerful than all of the rest of it. Mm. And that's a, well, that's a, I'm sorry. Yes, Donna? Oh, that's okay. Here, here's another brief thought, um, more so from an analyst's point of view and, and not as a woman. But if, if communicating with, with the dead, if it did provide answers... Um, if it was not forbidden, if it was not something that people had reservations about, and again, stripping away the the, the, the obvious catch that, that you're dabbling with things that you are not familiar with and the fact that it, it does have partly to do with what might turn into a recurring of the ancestral worship, taking all of that out of it again, uh, if it wasn't something that people had reservations about, I could imagine a world where generally anybody that wanted to could have the knowledge of uh, to summon a ghost. I mean, people all over the place would be talking with spirits all the time because it's allowed, because they're not spooked by it. Instead of calling psychics, instead of calling mediums, mm. instead of depending on the gifted few to communicate uh, to them for you, uh, going to speak with your dead relative or friend or, or whoever wouldn't be any different than it is today when you say you're going to have coffee with a with a buddy that you know. You know, if if it was not prohibited, it could be something that happens around us all the time. And that being said, if we lived in a world where the answers were might only be a seance away, where we could simply call upon the ghost of Einstein every time we're approaching finals week in college, uh, <laughs> we would eventually be stripped completely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, the point being that we would not rely on God, and yeah. that's where God wants us he to wants be. He wants us in a day-to-day -day relationship, and this stands in the way. Right. Of yeah. So we would be stripped a, completely. We'd be stripped completely of motivation for anything in life. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be mindless drones, miserably walking, breathing, already knowing everything, and not having to work toward anything. And if you take away the motivation to accomplish something and the need to accomplish something, you take away the very purpose in life. There'd be no need for God. Between between all of these theories that we've already said, you have an entire world of godless and bored people doomed to their own misery by their own supremacy over their own race of people. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I want to... Uh to sort of shelve some of these fundamental discussions, because I could go on for hours with this, but I, I want to talk more about your book. But <laughs> to put a little bit of a period on this, uh, we're coming at a, a, a key stage of our show. Uh, I just What you're talking about re relates so much to what I experienced this summer when July I spoke at a United Nations and World Council of Churches international conference that I was invited to speak, and the theme was the reconnection of heaven and earth. And the whole premise of this 30th annual uh, uh, conference, international conference, it had very famous people, uh, household names like Sean David Morton and uh, uh, Stephen Bass and Dr. Stephen Greer. They brought the UFO connection in with it. 
which which it's interesting. The UFO connection almost has a little bit of a similarity to this whole issue in that we uh, they they look at these beings as sort of our our ancestors in a different sense that we contact for answers. But anyway, the theme here was that um, individual gifted people have been able to make contact with the other side. And the whole conference was full of people who were psychics, uh, spirit mediums. But they're saying the time is coming very, very soon when, it, when the gates are going to open, the dimensional gates, in mass, where people in mass are going to have communications with these people. So they, they, they were presenting this as a positive state. Hmm. Now, of course, I, I took a biblical worldview, which uh, uh, sort of was about as uh, welcome as a submarine with a screen door. But uh, but I presented, and they were they were very polite to me, and uh, as I presented this, but but the message was was that this whole thing of looking to those on the other side for answers, uh, whether it was departed spirits, which was a big part of what was taught, whether it was some other ascended masters or um, non prehuman entities. Or, or um, alien beings that were supposedly our ancestors, whatever. Hmm. They taught that as something that was going to open up at a wide scale and was going to be our salvation ultimately. So I just find it so ironic that what we're talking about is really in line with, with current teaching. Uh, they've just added a few bells and whistles to it basically uh, in, in how they're approaching it right now. Uh, if if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a little bit to our book and our remaining time and uh, talk a little bit about your book because I want – uh, I think enough people have listened to this and have been intrigued by just the kind of issues it raises, even though we've gotten off the path of the, the, the theme of the book. It, it's so fascinating to think about it that they're going to want to get your book anyway, but I want, want to give them a little taste for it. So um, uh, Donna Lee, uh, if I could say that, yes. <laughs> uh, without uh, spoiling uh, you know, the key storyline or any kind of uh, real zingers in there for your, your readers, uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, – the premise uh, of your book, Ebenezer, The Final Years of Scrooge, and um, share us a little bit about the, the spirits. Give us some hints about uh, what what you uh, reveal about them. Well, I, I, I as I had mentioned earlier, I, I wanted to take um, a theologically sound approach to the idea of what happened in the first book, what really happened, the, the what happened part that nobody else addresses, why... I mean, seriously, every single uh, depiction of this story out there, um, the ghosts might change, but nobody ever says that they have any specific personal interest in Ebenezer. So um, I, I can't reveal uh, much more about them than, than just to tell you that I, I did from my own uh, creative, not necessarily having anything to do with any of Charles Dickens' personal theories. I took a little bit of creative uh opportunity to address the the ghosts from one of several of my theories and uh i did i did bring all the the, the main characters from the from the first one have returned it, it's a story involving tiny tim tiny tim is not so tiny anymore we have uh it's about a, it's about 16 years after the ending of the mm-hmm. first not where the first story ended yeah he's a central character He's just not on the periphery, adding a little color to the story. He he is a, is a central role, correct? Uh, Tiny Tim. Yes. He's he's uh, I would say he's second only to Ebenezer. Ebenezer Scrooge is, is still the main character in this book, mm-hmm. and uh, he is significantly older in age, and he wasn't entirely young in the first one. So, 
Um, it is it is a, it is called Ebenezer: The Final Years of Scrooge, and it does take uh, a very interesting look on everything that happened to him. And and you know, again, having researched London and having researched all of Charles Dickens, he was depicting this character having existed close to the same time he wrote the story, which would have meant in all of the research that I have done on London and Dickens and in his time, it, it could easily apply to uh, Ebenezer or Scrooge if he had existed as well. So looking at it from that perspective, Ebenezer Scrooge, if he had said, if he had come out and said, hey, I'm a different guy and I'm forgiving everybody of all their debts, let's walk and skip and sing, he probably, uh, if he, if he uh, attributed that change to ghosts, there again, you have what we were talking about earlier. So in my second book, I mean, I'm sorry, in my first book, which is uh, kind of a continuing story of Christmas Carol, I also addressed um, some issues. You have a, a natural uh, hysteria when he admits that it's ghosts that helped him get there. Mm -hmm. There's a natural reaction mm -hmm. where the people in the community and the surrounding area and basically all of London and, and from miles and miles and miles around react to this. And realistically, the only kind of person back then that wouldn't have been done away with just simply because of the fact that officially or unofficially that's not acceptable is a person who has uh, Ebenezer's social standing. He, there's no way that it, it couldn't – you can't do anything with Ebenezer. He's too powerful. Right. Hmm. So he's, I did, he's too big to fail, as they say in the huh. bailout world. He's too, he's too big to fail in, in the public circle. <laughs> So I addressed those issues. I addressed all of the uh, continuing issues. If that, I basically said if that story actually would have happened in the day that it happened, the way that it happened, and we're adding, uh, um, you know, again, we're addressing some, some spiritual things that some people may or may not, you know, whether you're a believer or not. Um, but I, I did address a lot of continuing reality-type stories, and Tiny Tim's sickness was part of that as well. I went in and did a lot of research on, oh, Polaria and, well, just a lot, a lot of childhood sicknesses that happened in London. Can you explain that? Are you at liberty to share us a little bit about uh, uh, what you put forward as some rationale for for his illness and how that advances the story? I don't, I don't want to say too much. I will say that um, pretty much anything back then that would have happened if you were actually a child in that kind of poverty which they were everywhere they were on every street corner and they were outnumbered so drastically if if you actually had had that there's no way you were going to get over it and in the case of somebody as as big as Ebenezer buying you the best doctors and the best medicine and making sure he promises to everybody he's going to get that child taken care of you may live but wow. you will never, you're never going to just grow up and be a big, strong, sturdy guy. You mm -hmm. won't. You can't. <laughs> so right. in my novel, again, I, I approached it from an if-this-really-happened standpoint and said, here we are 16 years later. He might be alive and well, but, you know, he's he's got a bit of a limp. This thing that he went through as a child, it took its toll. And even if he got better the day after Ebenezer became the changed man, you still... You're, you're never going to be the same. Mm -hmm. The deterioration to your spine, your discs, your bone structure, that, that's not something that heals. So, 
I'm sorry. So she, you wouldn't see Tiny Tim doing any, like, Mary Lou Retton backflips or anything? No. No. <laughs> Not unless a ghost was chasing yeah. you. Yeah. No. And, 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 and as, as a publisher, I can tell you that she's doing the best job she can to avoid <laughs> mm-hmm. answering uh, your question about, um, you, you know. You know, uh, you could be on the debates what, tonight with your ability yeah. to answer questions. Yeah. What, what were the American spirits and, and what about Tiny Tim? And yeah, that's right. You could be on the. Um, you know, they're they're professionals though at avoiding hard questions though. <laughs> the people on TV tonight. Um, well, you know, it, it, do you have any um, knowledge of anybody else who's attempted to write a sequel? To a Christmas Carol. Is this the first time after all of these years that somebody even began to do this? No. Um, there are several sequels. Uh, most of them, unfortunately, were uh, self-published sequels. They did not have good promotion. They were uh, eventually uh, swam off in the waves of nobody ever hearing or knowing anything about them. Uh-huh. There was one that did get uh, quite a bit of response, but the author actually approached it from here we are years and years later tiny tim is a drunk womanizer and he's involved in a murder mystery a lot of the characters from the original story are no longer even there and some of the things that he does with the story it 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 it, it actually when i read it i i found it an entertaining piece but it was so far away from the feel of the original book it it was kind of like what a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people actually say that they love Gone with the Wind, but they did not like Scarlet. Because when you go from one to the other, you have, you know, this big, beautiful, um, fanatical, big, beautiful, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Lace and, and makeup, and then you go to this more uh, dark, dirty, dismal, that the feeling is totally yeah, different. Yeah, it lost the feel of the original. But what's interesting about yours is that it answers a lot of questions. And, you know, you stop to think about what's the significance of the book, and you wrote a storyline in a way for people to also connect the dots into it. And I think that's what makes it superior. It's not that you just like the characters and you want to just add a little bit more narrative to them. You actually put some pieces together that not, were not completely connected or that maybe not the average person would connect. And I find that I to be, to <laughs> yeah, and I find that to be very useful. And it would be an excellent kind of book. Would you, would you recommend this book uh, for people, say, to get uh, teenagers to read as well, too, as older adults that are interested would, in yeah. fictional narratives? I would mm. think that would be a, be a neat gift, uh, particularly the, in advance for Christmas time coming up, uh, to uh, to get some books like this. Um, you know, when I was reading this and just talked about the ease in which you wrote about the interaction between these um, – these these ghostly type uh, figures and, and regular mortals, uh, it reminded me a lot of a of another uh, author uh, who was a member of the group called the Inklings, uh, and this gentleman's name was Charles Williams. Uh, he was a uh, esteemed colleague, a fellow Inklings, of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, I found it interesting in one of his books, like this called All Hallows Eve. Uh, T.S. Eliot wrote the foreword and said uh, if if he were going to go into a haunted house, he'd want to take Charles Williams with him because he would know most of the spirits that were there. Because right. uh, this was the uh, this was the reputation of Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a professing Christian. Uh, I don't know a lot of details about his faith, although he wrote a history of the church and also uh, a history of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. 
but he was considered the favorite author of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. They considered him a superior writer to both of them. So I didn't know if you were familiar much with his work or if if a gentleman like him or any others were you found to be inspiration uh, for you to do this type work. Actually, you'd be surprised uh, some of the works of inspiration. Some of them, um, some of them have and have not been considered controversial in, in the Christian church. But I actually I do like Tolkien. I like mm-hmm. Tolkien a lot. I like him, and I and I like C.S. Lewis, and I've I've heard a lot of debate about C.S. Lewis. What's funny is I have a relative that lives in a very small town, and she has a community theater that uh, just put on the play, um, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a lot of the Christian parents, after they had read the full script, pulled their kids out of the play because they were amazed at all the bad material in it. And well, I actually silly. I love the biblical parallel in that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brother Tom, are you familiar much with Charles Williams and his writings? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I've re- I've read some of the stuff of Charles Williams a long time ago, but I'm I'm not a you know a, 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 a literary uh, person like Donna is, or, or you know, read these. It, 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 for me, if it if it was written a long time ago, it better have something to do directly with theology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so I read I read a lot of ancient texts, I read apocryphal texts, I read a lot of theological studies um and 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 this is not to disparage whatsoever um anybody who writes in terms of um fiction mm-hmm. or a novel or a fictional setting uh but I always I stick mostly with non-fiction. The reason why we published the book by Donna is because she had done such an incredible job telling this story, and she had raised issues that, for for us, answered questions that we know are on the minds of the Christian community. And I, so, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I know we've we've left a lot of unanswered questions because you don't want to give away some of the uh, the key plot lines in it. Is there anything else you can elaborate for someone who might be considering getting the book? Um, without giving it away, of some of the key issues that may be clarified in their mind as a result of reading it? Um, oh, you know, having written it, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that, what do you think, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, you know, the thing about this book is, what first stuck out to me is, because, you know, my wife and I will get together every Christmas season, and we like the old British version um, of Scrooge. I, I can't remember exactly what the name of it is, but it's the uh, it's it's just uh, called Scrooge. Yeah, and who's the main actor in that? Charles, Charles Lawton. No. No, no, no. It's um. I'm sorry, I can't think of it. Oh, that's terrible. Well, anyway, the the, the British actor. No. <laughs> I, I, I know. No, Charles... that, no uh, Mike. Mike, that was the one call. Uh, Scrooged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Trying to be funny. Charles Lawton played in a British one. Um, Albert Finney. Albert Finney. Now listen. Now listen. Let me tell you guys. If you haven't seen the one with Albert Finney, then you have not seen the real (laughs) and legitimate version. (laughs) Uh, Movie version. No, I mean this is it. Get the one with Albert Finney. That's the true, I mean, that's the real deal right there, man. That's the one that matters. Anyway, my wife and I will get together every year and we watch that, and we love that show, and, and it's kind of a little tradition with us. And um, when this when this novel came to us in the form of a manuscript, it's very seldom 
that I will pick up a manuscript and just read it nonstop. Um, even the stuff that I love. I mean, I usually will read, you know, two or three chapters, set it down. I'm a busy man. I got other things to do. When I got this, when I got this manuscript to Ebenezer, the final years of Scrooge, I could not set it down. I read the entire <laughs> book, and it was so it was so fantastic to me. It answered these these very interesting questions about what are ghosts and things like that. But what I found interesting was it also didn't get hung up on that. In other words, it's not a preachy kind of book. It doesn't get right. hung up on theology. It tells a very interesting story about where Scrooge went from the, the Christmas story and what happened to Tiny Tim and all these original characters. And I was so caught up into this story that I just simply could not put this book down. So the best recommendation I can give to people is that, you know, if, if you want to read a novel, especially around this Halloween to Christmas season time, if you want to read a novel, and I think this book's going to be in print now in a couple of weeks, maybe maybe even by the time this show airs, uh, I would highly recommend it. And that this is, of course, the reason why Books a Million has selected this to be their you know their main right. book. They're going to recommend for the Christmas season because so, it's it's well done. It answers good questions and it's an extraordinary read. So you would su suggest people take some money out of their 401k before it's lost and set aside for books like to. this? Yeah. Uh, look, let me tell you, this book is so good. If you have to go down the road and pick up pop bottles on the side of the road wow. and turn them in and sell them until you get 14.95. <laughs> what about what about selling plasma? Is it that good a book? Yes. Okay. And wow. if, if you're if you're looking to just uh, give the listeners of this show a little bit of the plot, so that they at least know what the book is addressing, I will say this: it starts off where it's very evident that uh, there has been a transparent prison basically built around Ebenezer. He can't go anywhere without people stopping him in the middle of the road and wanting to ask him advice about something that maybe had happened to them spiritually. He's hmm. basically trapped. He can't go anywhere if people see him as a spirit speaker and other people want to uh, 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 punish him, basically, for what he said. So he's got people pulling pranks on him and all of that. While you have this happening, suddenly, in the midst of all this infuriating chaos for him years and years later, he actually, uh, Tiny Tim starts to see uh, this this figure appearing here and there, and it it is to some degree very frightening to him because after year after 16 years of, you know, his fatherly figure type, uh, the, this Ebenezer character having his story circulated for 16 years, that is a very frightening figure for him to see, but because pranks are happening to Ebenezer, he tries to calm them down. There's there's a little well, bit of the beginning plot. And, and there's some real surprises in this book. I mean, there are things that happened to Ebenezer you would not see coming. There are things that the Tiny Tim. And then these ghostly as, uh, apparitions and the return of uh, the ghostly apparitions. I mean, it, it, there's just things you don't see coming, but it, when you read the book, it all makes sense. So that part of it is, is it's absolutely wonderful. And um, Some were uh, so thrilling, I just went and crawled under my bed. Well, Thomas Glessner, Thomas Glessner, who who is uh, who's an author, he's well known. He's written two or three books. He wrote an endorsement for this book, and he said that you know after reading it, he believes it's going to become the next classic, uh, following wow. the Christmas classic by um, <laughs> Dickens. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, all I can tell you is that I read it from the beginning to the ending, and it was the funnest book I had read in a long time. Well, Donna, I want to warn you that if it knocks the Araman gate off the top of the Amazon poles, <laughs> yeah. just watch your back. That's all I got to tell you. I don't care. We already got a movie deal on the Araman gate, so now we want to get one for this. Is that right? Well, that'd be a, it'd be an interesting double feature, uh, I think. <laughs> hey, we just got a, just a two minutes left. Um, you know, one reason why we ran this now is not only is the book coming out now, but we're coming right up on Halloween. Um, and I'm going to ask this uh, just to Tom, just to, if you could be brief, Tom, for like a minute or two. Can you uh, tell us what is so special about this holiday regarding to the topic we talked about here and and uh, what should Christians particularly be thinking about at this time and era regarding spirits and the in the significance of Halloween? Wow. Well, I mean, it, this could be a show all of its own. I mean, the origins of Halloween are Celtic. Uh, they go back even before the Europeans. It's a magical belief that the veil between the living and the dead is thinner. This also starts representing the beginning of the actual um, calendar, if you will, for many of the people who follow um some you know uh the the um new age religions uh, wicca um yeah, i mean when you tell me i got 2 minutes it's pretty hard for me to go into or, this or but. less um but basically it is a time you know just like people don't like to associate locations with uh evil or demonic activity a lot of times people don't like to assume dates but people on quote the other side uh they do and uh, they put a lot of uh, sacred significance to this particular time. Uh, what's happening with the seasons and their belief. And uh, uh, there's just a tremendous amount of activity, much of which we will not see. Uh, but it's going on behind the scenes. And in the spiritual places, it is a time of tremendous activity. We may not see it in the physical plane. But uh, it wouldn't be a bad time uh to uh, use the weapons of our warfare as well and spend a, a good bit of time in prayer. Uh, during no, that that's, exact, that's exactly right. I mean, we could do a whole second show just on the history behind Halloween, but the bottom line is uh, we've entered into a period of time now that is sacred to um, persons of religions that are not Christian, and uh, but it gives us an opportunity, too. To be able to talk about these issues and to be able to intercede for this period of time. Right. And this book even may be a possibility you could give it to a coworker at work. They're familiar with the characters. Just about everybody likes it. And it might even open the door for a witnessing opportunity to uh, talk about some of these issues and what people think about as well, too. Um, That's exactly right. Uh, uh, Ms. Donahal, I want to thank you so much for your yeah. inaugural voyage on uh, Future Quake. It probably, probably in many ways, was more terrifying than what uh, Scrooge went through uh -huh. in his adventures. Uh, but uh, I want to let you know you're welcome back here, and you need to get busy writing three or four more books here quickly so uh, we can get you back here talking a bunch of issues. Obviously, you're an excellent researcher. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a, a keen intellect and, and mind of discernment to pick up what's going on behind the scenes, and I'm sure there's some other topics that uh, deserve treatment from you as well, too. And uh, well, thank you. I'd, I'd sure like for you to get a hold of it. I don't know whether it might be Adventures of Donald Duck or something else in classic <laughs> literature, but I'm sure you'd find something significant about it. And uh, I think that would fit with uh, Future Quake and uh, with Brother Tom as well here. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, there, is, there is wisdom and uh, food for thought in the most surprising places, and you have found one here. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us on Future Quake. Thank you so much for your invitation. 
Please Thank come you. back and knock them dead out there with yeah. those books. And I recommend everybody getting them. Uh, Brother Tom, keep bringing us good books like this, will you? Hey, well, thanks, uh, Mike and Tom. Thanks. Great to be back on the uh, air with you again. Yeah. And uh, we want to see you back again soon if you can uh, find a few minutes of time, okay? <laughs> sure. Okay. Thank you so much, and we'll look forward to having you both back on Future Quake. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake show with Dr. Future. And... Tom Bionic. And today is Friday, which means it's... It's uh, Friday. It's tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the Futures News. And I feel like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football from Lucy. Um, yeah, you're real proud of yourself, yeah. huh? <laughs> Hope the rest of us have the good time you're having. I'm just, sorry, Just folks. wait till the permanent co-host gets in here. Well, this okay, is where we review the news, church. but we have some real special things. This is a real multimedia day today. Yeah, well, we're going to have a it's bunch of... It's not just you and I chewing the fat for 25 minutes. Well, thank goodness. We're going to have a bunch of interesting we'll things. We'll still chew plenty of fat, but mm. we've, we're going to share the fat with... Uh, mm. First thing is uh, something where we sort of brushed with greatness uh, this past week. A week ago tonight, we mm. were at the debate yes. in Nashville, Tennessee on Belmont. Uh, we raced down there as soon as we could get down there, which was uh, shortly before the actual debate started. Mm-hmm. But the place was crawling with folks, but particularly mm-hmm. with uh, mounted police and basically a police state. Yeah. Uh, you know what I thought was interesting? What? was a Secret Service guy who was like six foot eight. Yeah. But didn't look like, he looked like he would have to write his name down on his hand to remember who he was. Yeah, he didn't look that well. He didn't, I'm he didn't sure he'll look- come take it. Have a visit with you. That's soon. okay. You but, know, but he had Secret Service printed all over him. Yeah, which was really secret. I know. Yeah. Well, um, it looked basically. I thought maybe that that uh, Atlanta unit that now is supposed to be here for crowd control from mm-hmm. Iraq at station and mm-hmm. uh, was it Fort Stewart? I just figured Fort they were Stewart, in town because yes. it basically barricaded the whole city. Well, it's sort of like the martial law will be. Well, they didn't soon. barricade the whole city, but well, that into town. Yeah. You know, we had to snake through That's true. the, the, the was, police barricades. It was hard as heck to, get, to get around Belmont there, get to where we needed to go. I'm just glad I was trained as a ninja. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's what helped me, you know. Really can't speak for you, but, <laughs> How but anyway, did I get we, there? we got there. And who did we find right in the middle of everything was uh, our brother Joshua Holmes the from C-Triple-A. Yes. Uh, Christian Action Against Apathy, who's been on our show in the past. and. Mm-hmm. The folks who actually sponsor Documentary Night uh, mm-hmm. every month. Yeah. Back to the next one, by the way, October, October 20th, the 25th. 5th, yeah, 25th yeah. at 6, 6 p.m. p.m. We're showing uh, Endgame. Alex Jones' Endgame. Alex Jones' Endgame, yeah, Blueprint fantastic. for Global Enslavement. Yeah. And we're having a panel there to you know stimulate some of the discussion and answer right. questions with uh, some really, really smart people. All right. Well, we found uh, Brother Joshua Holmes there mm-hmm. uh, uh, talking about uh, the issues that everybody and the other two parties seem to ignore, which are things like the bailout, which had just passed, mm-hmm. which was the biggest sellout in American history. Yeah. Uh, at least non-war-oriented sellout. You know, that's one of those things I've wondered about this. Why is it that when I talk to other good Christian folks, they seem to want to dance around that subject? And I'll tell you. You're going to answer your own question? I am. Okay. I'm going to try to, unless you want to answer it. What am I here for? Pyro. Am I just a bobo? Come here, Pyro. I'm just a bobo <laughs> dial. To, uh... Uh, no, it's weird to me that, uh, you know, people will talk about talk about trying to do 
do the Lord's work and live right by God and then totally throw out the window the largest fraud in, in history right. ever, you know. Well, I've had some brothers tell me that we shouldn't even be concerned with that kind of stuff. Well, you know, not theft didn't theft, you know. What's a little theft among yeah. Christians? Yeah. Not we like, shouldn't stand up for it. It's not like God ever talked about dishonest weights and measures in the Bible. Or no, anything, of course you not. Know? You know, proverbs. Right. Nothing. Well, anyway, we, we saw uh, not only him, but another CAA member, mm-hmm. uh, Brother Ben Harms, uh, who got himself almost in harm's way mm-hmm. uh, when we'd seen him. He had gone down to talk in the middle of the melee of just people shouting and doing all sorts of stuff everywhere, got himself positioned to talk, and had to bring a bullhorn with him. I probably awesome. like uh, his uh, uh, person he admires, Alex Jones. Yep, big Al. And it was in there in a, just a melee of shouting and screaming and things, and, boy, it all changed once he showed up. Uh, it really ruined the party. Mm-hmm. But we're going to let him tell it in the audio here. So if you don't mind, we're going to cut away to Let's this. Let's go to that to this uh, particular cut. If you miss this, you can always come back at our show and listen to it, or you can go right to the front of futurequake.com. For a limited time, we have the uh, audio, at least the part with him on there. But this is the extended version with both Joshua Holmes and Ben Harms. So here is a discussion we got on scene, right in the middle of the melee. You'll hear a lot of noise in the background. But uh, you and I, we're in the middle of the crowd right before the debate started on Belmont University campus, and here's what they tell us. This is Dr. Future, uh, down here with Tom Bionic from FutureQuake, live on the scene of the debate. Uh, we've been going through uh, police blockades down here, getting to Belmont University. They've been trying to shoo us away through an armada of police. But I have a couple brave men here who uh, have been here on the scene, that are representing themselves in Christ very wonderfully here and making their presence known. Uh, can you identify yourself, our uh, first guest here on the scene here at Belmont during the debate? Yes, this is Josh Holmes with Christian Action Against Apathy. Okay, and? And this is Ben Harms, also with Christian Action Against Apathy. Well, Ben has an amazing story we're going to get to in just a brief moment here that I want to share with you. But, uh, uh, Joshua, I want to ask you first, uh, by the way, we've really been enjoying documentary nights uh, down there, and we hope people are going to come. Endgame, we know, is coming up on the 25th that we look forward to being at. Uh, any observations you've had down here? It's been a crowded group of people, but it's swarming with police. It's looks like police state Nashville. Uh, any any kind of observations you made while you're here? You know, everyone's been pretty cool so far. Um, there's been some resistance to you know our message of freedom and and trying to get the third party uh, acknowledgement out there that you know both Obama and McCain are the same, and we need a better choice with with someone that's going to handle real issues going on. So, uh, you know, there's been some some struggle with that, trying to um, trying to tell people, you know, that, that Obama and McCain are, are the same. And there's been some disagreement, obviously, from a lot of Obama supporters, as we are in Nashville. But, you know, overall, we've, we've had a, a lot of good opportunities to get on television, send the message out that, you know, we're here uh, as, as Christians and as Americans that care about what's going on in this country as well as around the world. We are not for uh, this warmongering and this corporate bailout that has overtaken our country and our economy, and we really want to stand against the injustices that are being done to us and other people around the world. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. You're living up to your name here, your your group. You're taking Christian action here, and there are... How many people, almost a million Christian folk probably in this regional area sitting at home, 
uh, not coming out here, making their voice known, and then for the next four years they're going to complain about what we have to endure for the next four years, whereas you're, you're, you're putting feet to it. Uh, one other just real quick word, and I want to talk to, to Ben here real quick. Uh, what's the message on your sign here and, and the overall message that you've had? Well, on one side it says God is into third parties, which basically sends a message that McCain and Obama are not going to serve the people. They're not going to be humble servants like Christ is. So first of all, if you're a Christian, you should be looking for someone who has the ideals of Christ, who, someone who is a peacemaker, someone who serves humanity, that, not, that doesn't serve themselves and is not into making millions of dollars off corporations while the rest of us are left with nothing. And the other side of the sign says resist your slavery which basically means that we're not going to put up with the injustices that are going to be done to us over and over again by corporate fear mongers and war mongers people that that do not stand for for the rights of the innocent for for the rights of common americans like myself and yourself as well as people around the world that have to deal with the wars and the empire building and the injustices that are being done by these people well, Brother Josh, I want to thank you so much for your bold stand here. I wish other Christians could be here. I hope they are emboldened by your position here. It's the only truth we'll probably hear tonight. The debate's getting ready to start, so uh, I may need to roll my pant legs up here a little bit. Uh, speaking speaking of slavery, there's somebody who tasted it personally here. Uh, Brother, Brother Ben, you have an amazing story to tell. Uh, what happened to you here on the grounds? Well, um, I had the foresight to go and find myself a bullhorn because I not only wanted to make I not only wanted to say my opinion, I wanted to be heard. And we found where MSNBC was set up doing a live interview of Barack Obama. And so we set up behind the cameras with our signs and my bullhorn. And as I started uh, just, you know, spouting off facts about the Federal Reserve and the two-party system being a fake and how, you know, we're tired of being offered two choices that are no different. It's not a choice. There is no choice that exists. And just all good information, just getting it out, you know, and 80, 80% of the victim's families support a new investigation of 9-11. You know, everything relevant, just to try to get people to think and, and whatever. So three times I was asked by the low, the Belmont security to stop using my blowhorn and to, you know, just quit disrupting the, the filming of what was happening. And, you know, I said, I'm not breaking any laws. I have a right to my uh, opinion and I have a right to free speech and I can do this and you know you can't ask me to stop you can ask me but I'm not going to stop so on the third time they brought a police escort with them and at that time they when I refused to stop they took me into uh, they didn't take me into custody they didn't arrest me but they escorted me from the premises and I left with my blowhorn in hand telling everyone that I was being escorted away by three policemen for saying things that nobody liked hearing and they escorted me off the property and uh, so then we reassembled uh, just off of the private property and uh, started using our bullhorn again to just spread truth and really get 
get information out that will try to get people to think about real issues. How did the crowd respond when you announced that they were taking you away? Oh, man, they cheered. It was, uh, I just think, glad to see us was it was it cheers support or they just wanted to get rid of you? No, it was cheers of they were glad to get rid of us. And they just, you know, it's it's the, the public is operating in this closed mindset and in this just, the, that is a perfect example of the slavery that we're talking about because, you know, these people look at me saying this truth and saying these things that are, you know, challenging the status quo and challenging what they think and, and they dismiss it like it's just a lie or not true or I disagree with you so I shouldn't have to think about anything when the fact is that, you know, the top 20 contributors to McCain and Obama are the same banks and it's just ridiculous. The same banks that are making hundreds of billions of dollars and, and getting bailed out at the same time. Absolutely. That's exactly right, you know, and so everybody cheers and, and is just glad that we're being taken away and they have no idea that they are witnessing the last breath of the right to free speech. And uh, this was the same bailout that was supposed to protect their 401ks, which they've now lost over uh, roughly 12% of the value from the moment the vote was taken. Wow. So I want to thank you so much uh, on behalf of the Future Quake Show and Tom Biotic. Yeah. What I want to say here, Tom? Say Man, hi. this is a, uh, I wish all of our listeners could be out here. This is something else. There's cops all over the place on uh, mounted patrol. There was some Secret Service agents we, uh, we ran into. Um, we need a video camera. And a handful of people here who uh, support truth. Uh, it's more than a handful. It's a much larger group that's here showing signs. And an armada of police that are facing off on horseback and in a gauntlet, basically, confronting everyone here. Uh, this is something we're going to have to get used to for the future, I think. Uh, absolutely. And be sure to look out for our video of we got everything on tape with the altercation between security and police and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be on futurequake.com, and we'll also post it on YouTube. Put on YouTube, and we'll announce it on. Uh, we'll let the folks at Alex Jones know about it too. So we'll make sure they cover this too, and let them know that uh, it's catching on. That yeah. something is going viral, and that's freedom. Yes, freedom yeah. is alive, and people uh, believe right in it. And it's and it's the people that follow Christ that should be leading the way in this, right? Absolutely. Well, a few of y'all are, and that's that's great to see. Yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, pastors, those of you who are clergymen, other people in churches, and your your big uh, fancy churches with your large budget and other things, might want to get out of your, your golden chair and come down here and start contending on the front along with what Christ is doing here. And uh, this is Dr. Future along with Tom Bionic reporting out yep. from Future Quake. All right. Okay. Um, that yep. was a story from him. something else, man. Um, basically, he got hauled off by the uh, Belmont uh, police. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asked them what, what he was, he, he said, what, what am I breaking? What law am I breaking? They couldn't say. But they haul him off anyway. Well, I do remember. I remember seeing the video, and they tried to tell me it was disturbing the peace. Uh, but I don't know. He was at a public event. Well, you know, there's a lot so of things that come to mind for me. Um, this was a Christian school mm-hmm. that was having having this event. It was a public event for being uh, televised nationwide. Uh, it was um, something that basically they had pre-selected. The two political parties, although we know there are other national parties running for president, mm-hmm. they purposely selected two in the debates that they featured. And uh, isn't freedom wonderful that they'll pre-select the people well, for a debate? Otherwise, we'd have to think about it. And then pre-select questions. Which I give a thumbs up to Vanderbilt University for the day before having a third party 
third oh, yeah, party debate, yeah. you know, and I, I'm thankful at least they did it. But anyway, our Christian school here downtown actually uh, just had these two, and Ben made the terrible mistake in the middle of all this shouting and hollering. He had to start talking about why aren't third parties here? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have somebody who didn't support the bailout mm-hmm. uh, represented here? Somebody else who uh, didn't support the financial destruction of our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, said it in a very nice way, but uh, he was not very welcome there, so he was he was drug off at the time. But anyway, I just wonder when it's a public event like that, but they're, if they're already promoting two candidates, doesn't that sort of call into question things like their uh, tax-exempt status? Oh, sure. I think that's... If they're not making it... If it's not truly a public event. If it was a real public event, open to... And, and but basically, everybody was allowed on campus. I mean, they weren't screening people. Yeah. So everybody well, was there saying their piece until, mm-hmm. until he started talking about something that was unapproved mm-hmm. political subject matter. Sure. And then that well, changed. Uh, of course, people didn't like the bullhorn either. In my in my opinion, the whole the whole thing was sort of a farce to begin with. The fact that and they said the debate itself was totally boring and unimportant. Uh-huh. Right? To quote to quote a to quote a mutual friend of ours, Doctor Future, uh, it sounded to me like John McCain was voting for Barack Obama based on the <laughs> okay. debate. That's going to really hurt his chances. Then I would say. Yeah, you know. Uh, that that may not be the way to go about trying to win a presidential election. Right. Well, anyway, um, he Maybe was he's angling for a place on his staff. Who knows? <laughs> he was taken off campus, but uh, we did an interview on the spot. We sent some information on to the Alex Jones site. Mm-hmm. They put it right up there on the front. And yeah, that was cool, wasn't it? The, I know. And the next morning, Alex Jones on his national radio show was talking about uh, Brother Ben Harms and mm-hmm. talking about uh, his noble stand for freedom mm-hmm. of speech. Then suddenly it goes on other places. The video's on YouTube. Everybody's watching mm-hmm. it. Uh, Tom Horn put it on Raiders News yeah. Update, had a more extended interview, allowed Ben to write his own thing, put his picture up there. And now I understand, as of the time of this recording, tomorrow uh, Channel 5 uh, station here in town is going to do an interview with him. Oh, that's great. So who knows where this is going. I, I, I've been calling him the Rosa Parks of Christian activism. I sent him an yeah. email uh, that I thought would re- remain private, but since I'm here in front of a microphone, why not just say it? Yeah, there's, there, hey, there's nobody listens to the yeah. show anyway. So. <laughs> All ten I, of you keep your I, mouth shut. It, it, it wasn't very flowery. It was just a couple sentences, and I said, Ben Harms, you're a hero. And I believe mm-hmm. that. You know? Right. right. It, that's awesome. Well, ben you Harms. know, there's been a major debate. If you look on a few message boards, the last time I saw there was 171 messages on Alex Jones's site. A lot of people said, first of all, they, they mentioned the thing about it being private property. They have a right to throw him off. Shouldn't have had a bullhorn. On and on and on. It was a Did like his message. Though. I know, and I know people were screaming and yelling, you know, of all types. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that uh, it, it looked like the content. If he'd been yelling Obama, I don't think there'd been any problem uh, yeah. at all. But um, but but I've had a couple Christians that I really really admire and respect. Mm-hmm. I consider mentors that that also sort of felt the same way. And, uh, well, nobody's perfect. It's They're a free wrong. country. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's free country, and, and we all have different uh, opinions. But I think their general fear, and, it's, and I understand the fear about getting involved in anything that has a political connection to it, mm-hmm. is that you can get burned. Yeah, if you the, get hooked up to an individual, you, you know, you can get burned that way. To my mind, though, the difference is right and wrong. If somebody voted for the largest, the largest theft in mm-hmm. possibly world history. Uh, should we just turn a flat-out blind eye? Well, when we have a democracy, when God has given us the privilege of being able to participate in the selection of our leaders, mm-hmm. it's something that other Christians in centuries past would have just loved for. They would have literally died for it. 
They would have died for the opportunity to participate. That's right. And the way we squander it and the way we just sort of throw our hands up. Mm. And and let's face it, a lot of evangelicals who think this way we may be in the last days, which we may be, Mm -hmm. you know, they want to just sort of hold up in the ivory tower. A lot of them say, well, it's all foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. Uh, And the only problem is, what if it's not God's turn just yet? And what if it's the case that God expects us to go be salt and light? Yeah, Uh, the whole salt and light thing. In mm. the past, in the past, if, read that Christ, somewhere. if Christians hadn't stood up, would we still have slavery in our country today? If Christian abolitionists hadn't stood up, uh, would we have many of the societal ills, you know, that have happened mm-hmm. in our past? Mm-hmm. Had they not stood up, you know, there were there were some Christians that stood up and hid Jews, you know, a lot of them yep. just didn't want to get involved, yep. but they they got involved in doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some paid with their lives, like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is something I think we should have a whole show on. Sounds like a good idea. And we'll be we'll be talking about this next week uh, uh, when we have uh, when we have uh, William Grigg on. We already yeah. talked about it a little bit with with uh, Robert Hyde, but we need to focus on it. We're getting down to the end, and I want to introduce uh, another new feature today. Uh, we have a, a listener who's just an incredibly percep- perceptive and uh, eloquent listener by the name of Dave Cox, uh, who listens uh, cross country uh via the internet on mm-hmm. our show one of our many articulate uh, listeners we have mm-hmm. but his uh, insights he sent via email have been so intriguing that i thought the listeners might enjoy some of his comments so what i asked him to do was to do a little like two minute commentary mm-hmm. and he talks a little bit about the upcoming election coming up and the whole concept of voting for the lesser of two evils mm-hmm. and i think he says things a lot better than, than i ever would and he's just somebody different to listen to than you and i so I'm sorry. Well, well, I I applaud the fact that uh, I'm giving a, I'm giving ourselves a pat on the back for just letting a listener voice his views on our radio show. Well, we try to you know That's, be be open for that. You, you, you don't see have that a, much on you don't see no. that much on many other and shows. You, we, you know, there's not enough airtime to let a million people speak a million things. But um, I, I think that we attract a very intelligent group of people to listen to our show. Well, I think why they do. listen to us, I don't know. Why they listen to us, I don't know. But I mean, we from the emails I read, uh, they are sharp, well-read mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hoping that we can make us and our listeners even sharper, and then we can invite new people in the family. But with no further ado, uh, we'd like to try the inaugural uh, Cox Chronicles and uh, see what you think about it. You can email us if you uh, like what he has to say. But it's a little rough around the edges, audio-wise. He sort of put this together. We've not gotten the the little fine-tuning things on the noise and stuff like that, but Mm -hmm. that will come in time. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can be consummate professionals like Like we are in the shows that we put together. But uh, listen for content. It'll be something food for thought. So no further ado, here is Brother Dave Cox. A look at recent polls says that the American people are not satisfied with the performance of either the President or Congress. In this hyperbole heated presidential race, it would seem that the same can be said for the candidates. Christians have an even more difficult time in making the decision of whom to elect to power. Romans 13.4 speaks of our leaders this way, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God. A revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. God has appointed the leaders of nations to do good. That is to say, God's will, according to the law he has given us through Jesus Christ. Elected leaders are held accountable, as are we all, for the actions we do. Some interpret Romans 13 as justification for unlimited compliance to authority. And while we are beholden to them, it must be tribute to them, it is not a license to break the commandments that God has given us. Examples of this can be seen in the Bible. 
Exodus chapter 1 shows how the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Pua, disobeyed Pharaoh in his commandment to kill the male-born babies. Daniel chapter 6 shows Daniel violating the statute of the king that no man may petition God or a man other than the king himself. Daniel did so three times a day. Acts chapter 5 sees Peter and the apostles brought before the authorities for preaching in the name of Jesus. Acts 5.28 Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Acts 5.29 Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. When you contemplate your vote for president this year, keep in mind the true purpose of the position that of upholding God's laws and not trying to be all things to all people. Remember that voting for the lesser of two evils is still voting for evil. Okay, we've, we're down to like our last uh, minute and a half or so. You, uh, mm-hmm. We didn't get to talk much about the news here. but no. that, Hey, we made news. That was a thing. We yeah, were in the middle of the news here. Yeah. Um, we need to talk sometime about the secret March meeting about the September collapse. Mm-hmm. We I talked about, about this. that in March. We, yeah, talked, we talked about, about this it. on the show. Uh, back in March 13th, Congress met in a secret session. We covered it here on Future Quake when it happened, behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. It was the only fourth time in 176 years Congress closed mm-hmm. its doors to the public. I think a few people like Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich refused to go. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel like it was right. But some of the things that were mentioned that were reported by certain people about uh, what was this uh, new surveillance program they talked about, they predict, and this was directly from March, the imminent collapse of the economy to occur by September 2008, mm-hmm. uh, imminent collapse of federal government finances by February 2009, the possibility of civil war in the U.S. as a result of the cla- collapse, advanced roundups of insurgent U.S. citizens likely to move against the government, detention of those rounded up at Rex 84 camps uh, around the U.S.A., possibility of retaliation against members of Congress for the collapses, and the location of safe facilities for members of Congress and families. And then talked about the uh, necessary and unavoidable merger of the United States with Canada and Mexico and issuance of a new currency, Amero. Wow. So How interesting. Sorry I went through that real quick, our time yeah. short. But uh, it's September 2008. I'd say we may see the vestiges of this sure. collapse. Now the question comes, are we going to see the total collapse in February 2009? Hmm. The election, tend, the election will be over, so they won't have to pretend anymore. Yeah, it does. It does tend to fit with some other some other things that we've. Uh, right, and we have a new. Uh, yeah. We have a, We'll have a new president then. But we need to bring in Murph. Murph, come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us and tell us what they think about Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're on borrowed time as always. All right, let's get out of here. Come back next week. Another fantastic show. We hope you enjoyed this different Tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake.